0: Everybody is aware of TED Talks that you could view online for free, but haven't you wondered also about what it takes to organize a a TEDx event? Today, in this interview with Ajit George, he's going to share what it's like as having run one of the most successful TEDx franchises TEDx Wilmington. He's had over 620 presentations and they've been viewed over 6 million times on YouTube. What's even more interesting is how listening to these interviews, meeting the speakers, and letting the ideas really affect him have changed his life in so many interesting and profound ways. I invite you to listen now to Ajit George's remarkable story on My Quest for the Best.
1: Hi, this is Bill Ringle, host of my Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Ajit Matthew George. Ajit is an entrepreneur with three areas of focus. He's the executive producer of TEDx Wilmington, where he organized six annual TEDx conferences and 18 TEDx Wilmington salons, including one that was inside a prison in July 2015. To date, his TEDx events featuring 397 speakers from around the world, gave 375 TEDx Talks. And as of early March 2018, on YouTube, the sum total of views is over 6.3 million views of TEDx Wilmington Talks. Edge is also a certified dream builder life coach, and he helps organizations and individuals build their dreams Accelerate the results and create a richer, more fulfilling life. Third, Ajit is founder of Magic Dust LLC, a strategic marketing and event planning company, where he's managed events such as First Night Wilmington, Meals from the Masters, Celebrity Chef's Brunch, Evening with the Masters, Sellers Masters Wine Auction, and many more. Ajit is also the founder of Second Chances Farm, which is creating an organic vertical farm in Wilmington, Delaware, that will exclusively hire people re-entering society after completing their prison sentence. Welcome, Ajit. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. You've achieved such an interesting level of success and notoriety as an entrepreneur, especially in this region. What was an example from childhood that was a source of inspiration for you? I would say the interesting thing about inspiration is
2: I grew in a family where all my first cousins were either engineers or doctors. And it was almost the reverse I wanted to do be uh i wanted to not take a safe route. I wanted to be an entrepreneur because in many ways the inspiration of everyone having safety and being very traditional and having very comfortable jobs gave me the inspiration that I could take a risk of being out on my own. And so uh, my inspiration came as a reverse inspiration as opposed to having a role model in the family who was an entrepreneur. It was really saying, why not?
1: Why not and chart your own path? What's an early step that you took? to launch out on your own? Were you one of those guys who sold, you know, lemonade by the side of the road? Did you organize things when you were little? I was, I didn't sell lemonade, but I was when I was the age of 14. I happened to be,
2: I spent four years in India and I was 14 in one of those four years and I was very active in a, in a children's league, which was uh, very instrumental in helping me get organized and I organized a statewide poultry campaign where I took tail chickens that came from a hatchery and distributed to poor people for economic self-sufficiency. So that was one of my first projects, along with some seeds that was high called IR8, which was a really mean international rice strain number eight for a high-yield rice that really was meant to be distributed so that increased the population, increased the amount of yield that the rice would do. So at a very young age, I got inspired by somebody who was a key leader in the Children's League to really make a difference, and it helped me with my organizational skills. So distributing young chick- chickens and, and rice packets at age 14 and 15 was a very helpful way to get focused on what was important about giving back, about logistics
1: and planning. So it's clear you developed skills from those experiences. What did you learn about yourself? If you look back now, what did you really find that you were able to tap into being in a position of responsibility and making something like this happen on a a pretty large scale for a 14-year-old?
2: Well, I would say perhaps the most important thing I learned, it was okay to fail. And that failure meant that you did things that you didn't do before and that you perhaps didn't do it as well. And in the process, being able to really saying it's okay to fail. And I have perhaps the single most important thing that's happened to me is that recovering from failure is just as important as failing. And I think if there's one thing I learned is that failure is okay and I encourage Uh, anyone I meet or work with or comes to me for advice to take a risk and fail rather than be safe and do nothing.
1: Really, where would we be if nobody took risks?
2: Well, we could be further along if more people took risks and I think what happens is that people wait until they are too old to take risks and wish they had taken risks and that's something
1: that I have chosen not to do. Ajit, tell me how you got started um, with TEDx Talks. I mean, people have admirers of TEDx as the, I'll call the mothership, the original organization. And and as it branched out into different regions and different cities, how did you get involved in that process? And what was it like?
2: Well, I would tell you that I wish it was a master plan, although now it has become somewhat a master plan. TED was created in 1984, and in 2009, TED decided to create tedx to create ted-like events uh, in various communities around the world and so we are now in 170 plus countries i got my license in 2011 so i was not in the first wave in 2009 or 10 but it was fairly early in the uh, that period of getting a license and frankly i didn't fully understand what it meant to get a license i didn't understand the scale of responsibility it put on me. I thought it'd be interesting to do it because I thought it was great but ideas were spreading, and what started as a an annual event in 2012. I had one year to organize my first event, and with six speakers, has now grown into last year. Uh, in 2017, we did 12 speakers and a, a remarkable number of talks, and and in doing so, we have become in the frontiers of Wilmington, bringing remarkable ideas from around the world here, at the same time showcasing some remarkable ideas so that the world can view it. It's that responsibility that I surely didn't fully appreciate when I got the license in 2011, which is the opportunity to showcase and bring ideas that can transform lives.
1: I've had experience both on the stage and behind the stage, and for people who don't know what goes into putting on a TEDx talk, what are a couple things that you found to be very eye-opening and a big discovery based on your experiences? Well, the first
2: thing that people do when they either apply or get selected to give a TEDx talk is they feel the need to, and say, put everything they know into one talk, which is a huge mistake. First of all, the talk can exceed 18 minutes with the... Uh, the new recommended time, uh, which is not the maximum, is 12 minutes from an attention span. And so what we really work with speakers is to distill one idea, no more than one idea is a through line. And in that process is to get that really clear, what is that one idea we're spreading. And we find is that best talks are those that focus on one idea and not trying to get diverted into trying to be all things to all people. There's nothing prohibiting somebody from coming in and from giving another talk uh, two or three talks, but we try to encourage them to give one idea at a time That's really what it is because it's a global audience. We have people in all around the world i whenever I do a TEDx event, I say, you know somebody in South sudan Kazakhstan Brazil. Tuscaloosa, Alabama is listening, and why do I say those cities and places because they are very, very different locations. In many places, English should be the second, perhaps third language. And so it it is that audience that you want to make sure is impacted by your talk. And in doing so, you've got to be clear what that message is, and you've got to distill it for a global audience in a way without being trite, but being very clear uh, about what the message is.
1: Maybe without mentioning a speaker um, in, by name, could you talk about someone who thought that they were delivering a single message but actually were trying to pack half a dozen points in and what you use that people listening can help think about in order to get down to laser focus and have one idea that they talk about because that's the one idea worth spreading.
2: I would say more than 50% of the speakers start out with trying to compress more than one idea. I mean, just because they just can't resist. It's, it's that well, once in a lifetime, quote unquote, opportunities that people want to compress. Uh, what I always say to people is who have that struggle is to write down every idea they want to share in a TEDx talk. It doesn't matter if it's one talk or multiple talks. Once they put it down on a sheet of paper, I then say, what is the one idea out of all of those ideas on a sheet of paper that you want to share with the world if you never got an opportunity to give a second talk? And that's always a useful way of prioritizing uh, which idea you want to spread first as opposed to saying the rest are not valid or not important. It's that distillation process that makes the process work.
1: What are you often surprised at? with how people come to a TED presentation, especially if they're doing it for the first time. What are some of the things that surprise you that you wish that you could share, some tips maybe that you could share with people who are aspiring to do TED Talks or just aspiring to be better speakers that would be useful?
2: Well, we no longer let anyone come without a lot of rehearsal and we would get two videotapes of their talks after they accept the invitation. They write blogs. It's a very conscious, determined Process that uh, we now have, we actually have like a six-seven page agreement that they sign with very specific deadlines. So people who have no idea that they have to do all of that ahead of the time before the talk will often not accept the invitation because they realize it's just not what they bargained for. So we have eliminated the risk of non-preparation by requesting uh, a minimum of two videotapes, three, uh, two blogs. Uh, copies our PowerPoints ahead of time so that we can review it and give feedback. The second part is rehearsing. People are there's no podium, and there and there are no notes allowed when you give a TEDx talk, and there's no teleprompter. So what people really are surprised is they have to somewhat memorize. You don't have to be robotic. What you want is to make sure you remember your key points, and so it's that practice. A good TEDx talk or a TED talk it takes at least 50 hours of rehearsal, that, and that is practicing it so that it becomes second nature. That's the part that people are surprised because people who give a lot of public speaking are used to having an aid, a podium, of notes, and a teleprompter. This requires you to do that
1: without it, and there's no editing. So that's important for everyone listening to hear that 50 hours of practice goes into... A 12 or 18 minute presentation. 10 minute or an 18 minute talk. It doesn't matter how long your talk is. The rehearsal is going to
2: take the same amount of time. And you can and, tell. You can tell who has rehearsed and who hasn't. Uh, they, you don't need to embarrass them by asking. But if you put, if I have 20 speakers and uh, you almost can tell who did not rehearse. Because uh, as many hours as the person who uh, who probably got a much higher rank.
1: And how are TED Talks ranked? Is it simply
2: through YouTube views? They are only used through YouTube. So TED, TED has from the annual TED conference, which is in Vancouver, plus some talks from TEDx talks around the country. There are roughly 2,800 talks I think right now in the TED library. There's over 100,000 talks in the TEDx library, which is also maintained at TED. TED.com and all of those talks are available freely without a cost through YouTube. And that is, and so that's why in our case, we, as you mentioned, we had over 6,300,000 views. And globally last year, just the TEDx talks alone had a billion views.
1: Now, you took on the responsibility without, I'm sure like everyone else, not fully knowing what it would entail. What were some of the surprises from your end as an organizer? Well, picking speakers and curating speakers. Uh, if I look at
2: uh, year one versus what we are now going through, it is such a deliberate, determined process. We have now a very formal application that probably runs 13 pages long. This requires a submission of a video, its submission of all kinds of information. And making sure that when we do an event, there's the balance of, Gender balance of topics, a balance of, uh, race and balance of viewpoints. So they get that whole perspective from different angles of different topics there. Uh, and so that I think is pretty, that's probably the hardest thing for people to realize and for a curator to realize is how much time is invested. The quality of a TEDx event is directly correlated to the quality of the speakers. Sort of like going to a restaurant. You uh, can have the mo- you can spend millions of dollars on the facility, make it look beautiful. It can have flowers. It can have white tablecloth. But if you don't have a good chef or a good server, you're dead. So I think what I can hold a TEDx even in the most luxurious facility, but if I don't have a good, phenomenal speakers, and then the resources that go of putting that all together so that the experience is rich, uh, you end up with a very mediocre experience.
1: As you think back on all of the speakers who have been through TEDx Wilmington, who are one or two speakers who stand out, and what about their story or their message or their presentation makes them stand out still in your mind.
2: It's sort of like who is your favorite child conversation, but I think I can think of just the person who has had more views than anyone is a woman who gave a TEDx talk in February of 2017. Uh, her name is Ivana uh, HP She is featured as, on HBO. She's a famous actress. And she came to a woman to give a TEDx talk on why at age, I think she was 31 then, maybe 32, why she's still... A virgin and, uh, and she played, and she plays sort of a slutty role on television, so people are always surprised that that's not the case with her in real life. And she gave what I call entertaining and powerful talk on why she has chosen to remain a virgin until she meets the right person. And so, uh, it's, it's a, Built in of contradictions because she is funny, she's attractive, she's famous for being on TV. She's she plays a role that is funny, yet she takes this very counterposition. So I, that is a fascinating role reversal, if you may, in real life. The other talk, one of the other talks that always strikes me is a woman named Yolanda Schlebach. She's from Greensboro, Delaware. She runs an organization called Zoo Ministries, uh, and she reached, and I didn't know her at all. And she, I connected with her, and her talk, first time given was in 2016. She came back in 2017 and, interestingly enough, gave a second talk. It's about the fact about human trafficking, how Delaware is in the middle of human trafficking because it is between in Washington, New York and I-95 is the corridor for human trafficking and specifically trafficking women. I had no idea that we had trafficking in this country to the level that or to any significant level and frankly had assumed it would be a migrant population that would be vulnerable in fact it's not, it's American citizens, the young girls that are taken and then into a lifetime of uh, sexual slavery and so her talk was very Powerful in that it made she was looking for some changes. She got because of her talk, she was able to create real impact. And then uh, the fall, last year, she came back to give an update on what still needs to be done. So that's an example where an idea was spreading. She really was getting, trying to get the attention of the governor's office. She managed to do that with a talk, and in less than seventy-two hours, she had a meeting at the governor's office. And the truth of the matter is, it's how. Her, she needed a platform uh, that could vocalize an idea that she was working on for five years. So often what we try to do is to give a global platform to people who have great messages but are not getting them across.
1: Well, that must feel terrific to actually see someone be able to make a connection that was impossible prior to having that platform that you provided.
2: Well, I I would say it's never impossible, but it was harder. But it is also because TED and TEDx have a reputation. And because it's free and it's easily accessible, you can watch it. So I tell people the difference between us and a lot of events is you can speak in front of 10,000 people or 5,000 people. But the truth is that's the end of your mission in our case. Uh, with over 6,300,000 views in a small city like Wilmington, our talks have had a long shelf life, and they'll continue to have a shelf life as long as the ideas were spreading.
1: Let's switch gears for a moment and talk about how sure. your experience with hearing these very interesting topics that are not common, that are uncommon and very impactful, informs your work as a life coach. How has that helped you become more effective with helping people who come to you for life coaching.
2: What I try to do is to listen to what, what people identify as their problem and often it's not necessarily the problem that they believe it is. Yeah. So I end up having to be dead diagnosed, uh, di- give a diagnostic advice in a way that makes greater sense. So I think what I, what it really has helped me is to be helped to work with people better and help them to really, really probe As to what their real story is and what their message is. So I think often people come, come and say this problem is A, but in fact it's problem B, but you don't even know it exists. It requires a lot of questioning. So I think what, what I think is a good life coach does is to coach somebody to really understand what the problems are, what their strengths are, and perhaps the strengths they didn't have and lead them to a new a new place. You can only show them how to walk and give them the directions.
1: think that sounds like a fascinating process. Do you have an example you could share with us? I mean, I have
2: a client. I had a client who was somebody who ran a very, very interesting restaurant in Delaware. We'll just leave it at that. But in fact, it was taking a huge toll on our health. And the reality was restaurant is a tough business. She loved it, but she wasn't being honest with herself how hard it was so in the process of over six months of working with her we identified really had to get out of it which meant closing it which meant she would lose money but the choice was losing money or her health and her health would also meant perhaps her life and so it really helps when somebody can actually listen and take that bitter dose of medicine that is necessary but in process it actually helped save her life and she was able to able now to rebuild it but she lost a lot of money in the process so it's not your normal success story where it, you've made millions of dollars it's really you're helping them succeed by actually surrendering something that they are doing
1: yeah. and again it wouldn't have been impossible to do otherwise but you facilitated that by helping her confront some of the inconsistencies and issues that she wasn't able to deal with on her own Absolutely. It's much harder to get people to
2: gracefully surrender something that they passionately believe in because they believe the success is one. Corner around, which it is in many instances. It is, but sometimes you have to come to reality and look in the mirror and say, "You know what? These are my choices, and I really need to make my choice between health, life, and and discontinuing this."
1: You also run Second Chances Farm. I'm getting
2: ready to start it. I have been working on it for the last year. Second Chances Farm is an idea that actually came from a TEDx talk. We are building a vertical farm in the city of Wilmington, which just means that it's a farm that goes up. It'll be inside an existing warehouse or a new warehouse, and we will be growing organic, pesticide-free fruits and produce. And the people working in that farm will be people who come out of the prison. The idea is second chance to give them a second chance in life uh, and at the same time produce uh, high-quality produce and vegetables for a population for for a, for the eastern seaboard which is really 150 miles from Wilmington from Washington New York to re- supply restaurants and to supply People on food on uh, with with food that is pesticide free and organic, but at the same time is fresh and it's not traveling hundreds of miles or thousands of miles.
1: It's a powerful idea, and I, I'm sure that because of the locale, both geographically to these the New York and Washington DC markets and along 95 that will have a, a lot of buyers and, and audience for those fruits and produce. Right. A
2: lot of chefs want to minimize, say, maybe even reducing food miles, which is a length that food travels because there's obviously something involved in traveling hundreds of miles. So if instead of buying from Ohio and you can buy it from Delaware and be 150 miles, so typically food miles are considered any food that arrives within 150 miles, and we want to capture uh, supply, uh, supply restaurants. Uh, with food that is within 150 mile away, so they get it fresh, it's new, and it's not traveled. And it's also because it's organic and pesticide-free. And then there is the added benefit. They're helping a whole population
1: that normally doesn't get much help, and that's where the word second chances comes in. What is it in the next six months, as you look out on your own horizon, that excites you greatly about taking on and applying your energies and creativity to? So, second chances has
2: uh, multiple elements, not the least of which is I got I'm in the stages of raising equity for it, but also uh, getting a warehouse and putting all that structural. I look forward to raising money, which means persuading people that there is a potential success in this venture, and um, but also to put together. You know, what do you grow, do you grow kale, you grow lettuce, you grow strawberries, you grow microgreens and what grows and grow, making it well and picking the right location in the warehouse and putting all of that together and making sure the initial team of people that are coming out of prison is a group that really is committed to not only just working, but also within six months or a year after they work, they will want to become a co-op farmers, essentially entrepreneurs. My idea is really in the next seven years, which is between the, I end mean, was 63 last year, by 70s, to convert 70 capitalists or people in the capitalist with small c, which is people who are committed, who are self sustaining uh, or independent. And that is the goal is to create role models of people who, and to show people that they
1: have the opportunity to be successful even though they went to prison. That's a terrific message to get out because of all of the resources and opportunities that come together. Both geographically as well as structurally and organizationally that you bring together as well as the relationship that you can help them form.
2: Exactly. I mean this is, this is about providing uh, a legacy where they can show to people that they made a mistake, they paid the price, they uh, paid the price to society, now they just looking for that opportunity to redeem themselves and be successful and be independent. So for their families and for the community, uh,
1: it's a huge, huge win-win. How did you get started with work with prisons? Because I saw that you had also done a TEDx talk at a prison. It started with an event I
2: did uh, in May of 2015 called Breaking Bread Behind Bars, which was a food and wine event without wine inside Baylor Women's Correctional Institution in May of 2015. And uh, out of that, at that end of that event, I raised a bunch of money, $20,000 to be precise, for building a greenhouse in the prison. And that led me to, um, to a TEDx event in the summer of 2015. And it got inspired by a gentleman named Matt Haley, who was a chef, very famous chef who won a James Beard Award in 2014 and then died later in 2015 in a tragic 2014 a tragic accident. So he inspired me to look at it, and then I did the two events: one in 2015 in May, and one in uh, one was a food event, and the other one being the TEDx event. And that sort of began a process that uh, just sort of taken over very significant parts of my life.
1: And as you look at on the landscape, are there trends that you see that are looking to support your efforts and any trends that you need to overcome in order to be successful with the Second Chances Forum?
2: Well, there are two trends. One is there's a huge shortage of labor force in the United States right now because the biggest concern is that we don't have enough people to work. One of the largest forces that are going to be available are people coming out of prisons because there's over two and a half million or over two million people that are in prison and the vast majority when i say over 90% of them will come out of the prison so there is a group of people that are not listed in any unemployment statistics because they are not looking for work or work or on uh, but they are going to come out they don't have necessarily the skills but that group retrain can become a major force in in dealing with labor issues, and that I want to do my little part in showing how we can make a difference with that group. So tackling the attacking the fact that there is a shortage of skill shortage of labor, a shortage of skilled labor and to take advantage of this group that's coming out, reducing recidivism. There is people going back to prison. Over 68% of the people go back to prison because they can't find a job or have other problems minimizing all that are huge trends and the cost to keep somebody in a prison. In a state like Delaware, it's $38,000 a year to keep somebody on that when you blend all the costs together to keep somebody in a prison. So I think it's in our collective interest to find ways to reduce
1: that. It's a great insight seeing where there's a, a supply and figuring out a good resource to plug them into in order to help them to succeed along with a supportive path and a supportive environment and culture. Ajit, you are involved in so many different aspects of community life, promoting TED Talks, running different businesses, coaching executives and other people from all walks of life. How do you stay organized and productive? Are there particular tools or systems that you follow? What's an insight that you could share that people listening might be able to adopt? The key is always
2: remembering that there's no such thing as multitasking, regardless of what anyone tells you. So at the end of the day, you've got to decide if you make a list of 25 things, what's the one thing? that you must do today? And what's the second thing that you must do today? And it's the prioritization that becomes important. And what happens if something doesn't get done, can it be done the next day? And I think that's always the key. Uh, And also always making sure there's time to make for people because at the end of the day, the people connections. So when somebody needs you, you need to be available to reach out and then making the, time for that at the same time making sure your priorities get don't get lost. So it's the balancing act between what must get done, what would be lovely to get done, and what would be desirable to get done. Those are different needs uh, versus, uh, versus the interruptions that come that require your attention. It's to be flexible at the same time be focused on making sure you don't get lost on the way. And also to respect failure and to respect the fact that you will not always be successful and that you and that you pick up and clear up the dust after you fall down and get up and walk again.
1: And George, you've, you've shared so many great ideas with us today on my quest for the best about how you had reverse inspiration when you were younger, where you, had a, you grew up in a family of engineers and doctors, and you said you didn't want to take the safe path. And that led you to taking on responsibilities when you traveled to India as a teenager. Led to you also founding and taking an early license in TEDx Wilmington, I think you're, it's safe to say, the founder of TEDxWilmington through those presentations and organization of the different events that you've created. You've come away with some great ideas for helping people be more effective speakers. You've shared how to really winnow down and focus on one clear idea to get across because that's what makes an effective presentation. And you talked about how the impact of TEDxWilmington can be so profound with getting out a message about someone whose personality you wouldn't have expected because of the roles that she plays as actress, but really talking about personally how she's choosing to stay a virgin and be purposeful with that, as well as a person who, a different person, who talked about the very important role that Route 95 and Wilmington itself plays in actually trafficking and using the TEDx talk as a way to gain access to lawmakers and legislators who can actually do something about it on a larger scale. You shared with us ideas about being a life coach and how that really helps. One of your particular gifts is helping people confront things that they may not be aware of. And then also a great story and a great application of your creativity and dedication with Second Chances Farms in being able to see an opportunity for people who are exiting prison and creating an opportunity for them to have fulfilling work And becoming self-sustaining entrepreneurs by taking advantage of some of these trends with people being released from prison and the opportunities of existing in Wilmington, which even though it's not really the Garden State because I'm from New Jersey, that is the Garden State, but it's close enough in climate. And I'm sure the soil is good for growing a lot of things that will be very appealing for restaurants and chefs up and down the East Coast between Washington and New York City. I just have to Thanks tell again. you, there
2: is no, so- no soil involved. It's all water. It's all water <laughs> because that's what makes uh, makes this thing work so well because the vertical farm works without soil and it works strictly with water. So just so you know, and that's why we don't need to use pesticides or anything else. So-
1: Interesting. So the warehouse would actually be where it's grown because you're doing it by adding nutrients to the water? Right. That's correct. Tell us, where can people find out more about you and your work? Well, well, there is no one singular
2: source, but they can surely, if they want to reach out to me, I'll give an email address, and that's sort of the best way to connect with me. Uh, I have multiple websites, and I don't want to bother people, but George at me me.com, at your George and Me.com would be a good way for somebody to drop an email and say I'm interested in Second Chances, interested in TEDx, interest. And each there's a whole bunch of websites, each one being very different because these are all independent entrepreneurial or independent ventures for the lack of a better word. But at that particular email address, which is fairly
1: easy to remember, uh, will get people to me. We'll certainly link to all your websites on the interview page. Do you have a social media account, like a Twitter account or Facebook account? Well, I mean,
2: I am also, I'm, I'm, I am on Twitter, but the most active account is Facebook, where I am, H-A-I-T, Matthew, M-A-T, 1-T-H-E-W, George. And I am very active on Facebook. And I'm somewhat active on Twitter, but I'm more active on Facebook than I'm on Twitter. And I'm always interested in meeting interesting people. I'm also active
1: on LinkedIn. Ah, fabulous. So we'll link to all of those. Thank you once again for joining
0: me on My Quest for the Best. Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on My Quest for the Best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up My Quest for the Best, and subscribe. I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together. And I appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the, the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.